All right, while they're heading out, if you would open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. We're reading our scripture here. It's Mark chapter 13, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 37. So we follow along as I read the word of the Lord, from starting from Mark chapter 13, verse 1, all the way through 37. And as he, as Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say what is ever given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand then. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been seen from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands his doorkeepers to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. All right, Mark chapter 13, if you have your Bibles, uh, Mark chapter 13. Thank you, girls, for reading. Thank you for the extra participation and worship. I want to say welcome to some guests we have. So we have some worship in Arabic, we also have translation in Arabic, and we're very happy to have people from the, the nations here with us from, uh, from the community. So I'm going to speak a little slower today for our translator, and, um, but I, so we're in Mark chapter 13. We started almost a year ago, at the beginning of Mark, speaking about chapter 1, verse 1, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're walking through the book of Mark, seeing what it means, who Jesus is, and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Today we come to Tuesday of the Holy Week, Tuesday in Jerusalem. Jesus entered on Sunday and was praised by the people. They said, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Every night he left Jerusalem and came back the next morning. And this is Tuesday. He finishes a day of teaching in the temple. And he has already put all the religious leaders and all their questions to shame. And he leaves the city on his way to Bethany. And he stops on a mountain called the Mount of Olives. It was a hill full of olive trees and also figs. And we come to this longest monologue in the Gospel of Mark, and we call this the Olivet Discourse, or the Discourse of Olives, because he said it there on that mountain overlooking the temple. Just a little bit of context. His disciples wanted him to see the temple, how huge the stones were and how beautiful it was. We spoke last week that the disciples expected that they would reign as kings together with Jesus from that temple in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was a city with, it was not a city with a temple, it was a temple with a city. The temple was one-third the size of the whole city. And it was the place where God's name was expected to be proclaimed and his teaching where his Messiah would come and his presence would be with his people. But Jesus gives them some surprising news. He says that before this generation passes, Every stone is going to be destroyed, taken from the other, and this temple will be destroyed. This was a major shock to the disciples of Jesus, and they asked him, Master, can you tell us when these things will be? This is a very important question. It's a question that you and I want to know from God. Lord, when? When will you do this for me? And when will you make these dreams come true for me? Or when might I really be disappointed about things? And they ask him this question, Lord, when will these things be? 
And so yesterday we said that the, the key of this whole chapter of Mark is verse 13. And if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to bring your Bibles because we're going to be looking through the text together. And in verse 13, he says that the one who endures to the end will be saved. So we've talked about the importance of endurance, the importance of starting your Christian life. We started, we had a baptism, Luke and Seth, a couple weeks ago. In May, we're going to have a new baptism for some others. And we love baptism. It just celebrates a new birth in Christ, a new spiritual birth. Jesus is saying, however, in chapter 13, that it is more important that you endure. It's more important that you finish as followers of Jesus. We talked a lot about that last week, what it means to endure, what the word endure means, and what, um, how it's the work of God in us to endure. So in the book of uh, Philippians chapter 1, it says that it is God who begins in you the good work, and it is God who will complete it. This is, means it is, a, it is a work of God in every believer to finish the work that he started. But we are also called to endure. So while this is a work of God, it's also something we are commanded to do. You can see that verse up there. Um, this week I sat down with a man named Nabil, and Nabil is from the city of um, Saida in Lebanon. And Nabil was, is a new believer. He came to Jesus just three weeks ago, four weeks ago. And I met him at Don's house on Monday, and he shared with us how he came to Christ. Hopefully, he'll feel well enough to be with us during our mealtime, and while we're eating, we'll hear his story. If not, he'll come back, inshallah, and will share with us how he came to Christ. But there was, I've, I've rarely in my life heard such a testimony of somebody that goes so well with the passage that we're in preaching this week from Mark chapter 13. His sister began to share Christ with him almost 45 years ago when he was a teenager. Started to share with him how she had come to Jesus from, uh, from her Shia background. And she explained it to him, and at that time, his parents and the 11 siblings all rejected that. They listened to her. They were very kind to her, and, and um, let's say... They, they listened to her, but they, they didn't receive what she was saying. Now he's 62 years old. In December, as a 62-year-old, he said that God got a hold of his heart. Now he got a hold of his heart literally. He had open heart surgery in December. And in a figurative sense, he got a hold of his heart and opened it up to Jesus. And he told us about how he received Jesus as Lord. With, he was crying with tears. And he said, I want people to know. He's still never been to a church service, so hopefully he'll be able to join us soon. But here in Dearborn, God is still doing miraculous work. And the two things we're going to see about enduring today as disciples of Jesus are especially poignant, I think, in his testimony. The first is that we can trust God, that he is sovereign even in our suffering. And secondly, that we are to stay awake spiritually during long years of waiting. And this man's sister, Nomi, who started the Arab American Friendship Center over 40 years ago, has for four decades been waiting on God to do a work in her family through her faithful witness. 
but she stayed spiritually awake. And that's the challenge to us that Jesus is going to give us today, is to trust God's sovereignty in our suffering, that he is still king and he is working it out for, his good, for, his, for our good and his glory, and that in our waiting, we should stay spiritually awake. So we started with the first point last week. Jesus gives three scenarios in which disciples of Jesus are put under pressure to not endure. So we as humans are weak, right? Even those who think that they're strong are weak. And he tells us that there are three situations that are coming for the disciples that they should be aware of, and he gives them 11 different imperatives in this chapter. We broke the, we, we kind of categorized those 11 into three different commands for the believer and Jesus as warnings about when specific times in our lives come, how we are to endure. The first one was that during times of disappointment, we tend to believe false saviors. And we looked at that last week. We won't, we won't go over that again. And you maybe noticed that the girls didn't read all of chapter 13. That's because we covered those verses last week. And this week, we're going to cover verses 9 through 13 and then skip the section and go from verse 24 to the end of the chapter. So the second point that we have in our series about enduring as disciples, this is good news for those who endure. The second part is during times of suffering, we tend to doubt his sovereignty. And that's in verse 9 through 13. So I want you to look at it with me. And there's basically two warnings that he gives about suffering. The first one is that we should not be surprised by suffering. Darkness will always react against the intrusion of light. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. I lived 10 years in North Africa, and I remember the testimony of one young man who was 15 years old when he first believed in Jesus. And he was so excited, he took a stack of New Testaments that he'd gotten from Europe, and he brought them to give away to his classmates. By the end of the day, he was in the principal's office, and the police were sitting there with him too. And he was shocked that there was so much reaction to him sharing what he thought was the obvious good news of Jesus, the Messiah. But Jesus wants his disciples to not be surprised when they are uh, when darkness reacts to the good news of the light. But the second thing that's a warning for them, he says in verse 10 and, and 13, is he doesn't want them to be anxious. He doesn't want them to be worried about what's coming. Look what he says here in verse 11 in particular. It says, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. This word I want you to focus on in verse 11. He says, do not be anxious beforehand. That's just one word, anxious beforehand, in the original Greek language. And it means to be full of care before. So pro in, uh, so pro in, in Greek, I think we have it up here in Greek. I think uh, Alex can help me with that. So, promerimnate, 
means to be probing before, or meramnate, meaning to be careful or full of care or worry. And he says, don't be full of care before things happen. Before this persecution happens, don't worry about it. Don't be full of concern or care. I don't know how many of you struggle with being anxious or being afraid of what might happen in the future. But Jesus is saying to his disciples that especially concerning witnessing of his name, he does not want us to be full of care before it happens. So I was sharing this same verse with Nabil this week. We were having coffee, and he has two, has two, two children he wants us to pray for who are still living at home back in Lebanon. One's name is Noor, his oldest daughter, his, actually his fourth daughter, and fifth is Hussam. And he was, he was worried about how he's going to explain to them his new faith. And I was able to take him to this verse and say, the Lord, his, his spirit that lives within you, is going to give you the words to speak. But why and how should we not be anxious? It's easy for me to say, don't be anxious. Don't be worried. Don't think about it. But why should we not be anxious? It comes down to two things. Remember that we said that during times of suffering, we tend to doubt his sovereignty. So I want to look at this word sovereignty. Sovereignty means the absolute authority of a king. So if you say that there is someone who is sovereign over a land, it means he is king over that land. And so God, as king, is all-powerful, all-wise, and all-good to do as he pleases. You heard the kids here saying that they learned this word sovereign. It's very important that we as followers of the Lord understand what it means that our God is sovereign. And I taught the kids this lesson two weeks ago. Seth and I did. I love teaching it because sovereign means these three things. Not just that God is all good, because if he were all good but not all powerful, then he'd just be like your grandpa who's a nice guy but's not really helpful. Well, maybe your grandpa is helpful, but you know what I'm saying. Like, he's not all-powerful. Or maybe if he were all-powerful, but he weren't good, then you would only be afraid of God. You'd be afraid that he wouldn't be consistent, and you would be afraid that he will only do evil to you. But also, if he were only all-good, then and not all-wise and powerful, then you would trust his heart, but you would still be afraid of the circumstances because you wouldn't know that he's sovereign over the circumstances. But to know that Jesus is sovereign over every single thing that happens in your life, in fact, everything that's ever happened to you, means that he is, everything that happened, happened under his sovereignty, meaning under his good, wise, and all-powerful plan. But how is this helpful. It's a very Christian doctrine to understand this about God's sovereignty, to understand two things about his sovereignty, that everything God does, everything that he does, has as its main result two things. First of all, his glory and our good. So everything that has happened to you or in this world, and I, that you, you can let your mind wonder about some of the worst things. The things that you've wondered, why is God good if this has happened to me? Or how is God wise if this has happened on some, in some other land somewhere? God's sovereignty says that even when they give us up to death, verse 12 says, he is still good 
and wise and powerful in everything that he does. And he is working it out for the good of his people and for his glory. I want you to consider Romans 8, 28, that everything that happens happens for these two reasons. It says, and we know that those, for those who love God, those are his people, those who love God, all things work together for good, all things, to those who are called according to his purpose, that his purpose is his glory. So this verse, if you ever wonder, how is it that these horrible things in my life and in this world are happening if God is both good and all-powerful and wise, he has promised us that they are all working together toward the good of those who love him and his good purposes in this world. So, but in times of suffering, especially for his namesake, we tend to doubt this truth. But he is still sovereign when men reject his sovereignty. Because men reject him does not mean he is no longer sovereign. He will cause the gospel to be preached in all nations. If you look what he says in verse 10, and the gospel must be first proclaimed to all nations. So this is like one of those things that God takes as his responsibility, that he is going to make this happen. And he is not frustrated. His plans are not thrown off. He's not in heaven worrying how it's going to happen. He takes it into his good sovereignty that every language and nation and tribe will hear of the good news of Jesus, even though his witnesses are killed for that same message. Look at what he says in verse 12, that brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. That doesn't sound like good news, does it? If you were to write your own good news, it wouldn't sound like that, I don't think. So why is it, how is it that we can trust God's sovereignty, that he is good, wise, and powerful in all of the horrible situations of our lives and in all of the destruction that we see in the wars of this world? The answer can only be found in the cross of Jesus Christ. The most heinous of acts that ever happened when God's word became flesh and dwelt among us and the people who were supposed to receive it, who he told it was coming, instead took up whips and destroyed him and took up a crown of thorns and crushed it on his skull, took nails and put it through his hands and feet and stuck him onto a piece of wood, hung him up in the air to die. You would say, how could a good God cause that, let that happen, when in fact the book of Isaiah tells us that a good God caused that to happen, that he was bruised for our iniquity, that he was punished for, to take our punishment. So the cross of Christ guarantees us that in your suffering and in the hardest things that would happen to these disciples, that he was working out his good purposes and he was working out good for them. Otherwise, death can be the end. But because of the resurrection after the cross, death is not the end. So to endure through your suffering as a follower of Jesus, you have to get a strong hold on this idea that God is sovereign, meaning he's good, wise, and powerful, even in your suffering. 
Otherwise, you would not endure. There's a few applications I thought of for that. First of all, this could be applied to our witness for Christ most obviously here in this passage, whether that's in Lebanon with our brother that I was speaking with this week, or whether that's with your coworker or students if you're a student. I'll give you the same advice I gave Nabil this week. Don't worry what you'll say to your children. Don't worry what you'll say to your wife. Be filled with the word of God. Read it. Love it. And let the spirit of God speak through you. Another application is that this can be applied to any suffering that we go through for his name's sake. I want to give you, I think a lot of us in America think that we've never experienced persecution that we've never experienced suffering because of the gospel. And so I want to give you four ways in which, as a Christian, you should experience loss because of Jesus. And here it is. A definition for persecution is any cost that you pay in service to Christ. So that's just a simple definition of persecution. Any cost that you pay in service to Jesus. And here's four ways that you potentially are suffering for the name of Jesus. First of all, you pay a cost when you obey Christ against your own will. And if you've never obeyed Jesus against your own will, then you're probably not a disciple of his. A second way is, do you give of your time? So when you give of your time to serve others, then you are experiencing a loss of time for his namesake. And what about when you give of your wealth? When we give here through the church or to others in our communities that need him and that, need, that are in need, then we are experiencing loss for the name of Christ. And do you speak up for him? Have you ever been in a situation where you have felt that you should speak about Jesus to somebody? If you have, then this is experience of loss because you are going against what you would otherwise feel comfortable saying and you're saying something they need and that you know they need. And so these are ways that even in this country, uh, where you may not recognize what he's saying in these verses in the severe sense, but every follower of Jesus will suffer loss in these ways. If you look at these four and you haven't experienced any of them, there's a very high likelihood you are not a disciple of Jesus. Because a disciple of Jesus follows Jesus. And they experience loss because of Jesus. They deny self and they follow Jesus. So in the loss that you've experienced, whether it's wealth and your time and, and your desires to do what you want to do and you're following Jesus, God is sovereign in that thing. In whatever loss you experience, it is according to his sovereign and good will for you and will turn out for your good. So don't be anxious about that cost. You might think, how can I begin to start to give or have this conversation with our teenagers as they're beginning to make money and they're beginning to give, or at least they should, and we're telling them about how their mom and dad have always given out of the first thing we do is we give to the Lord, and they start to think, well, how can I pay for this bill and this bill? They're new to bills, right? How do I pay for my car insurance? Then how do I pay for my school? And how do I pay for these things? As a believer in Jesus, here's what Jesus says. Do not be full of anxiety about how he will supply that need beforehand. You obey him, you follow him, and you let him supply according to your needs. So when we go through suffering, though, we tend to doubt that he is sovereign. 
The, the, second, the last point, so we had first point last week and second point just now. The third one is that during times of waiting, we tend to fall asleep. And now if you're sleeping, Luke, during the service, then you're not, he's not sleeping. He's not sleeping, everybody. But if you're sleeping during a sermon, you know what I'm talking about. But during times of waiting, we tend to spiritually fall asleep. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 24 through 37. You know, we don't do very well at waiting as humans. I don't know if you've ever tried to plant a tree with a child. Have you ever tried to plant a fruit tree with a kid? And you explain to them that maybe next year, but probably in two more years, this tree is going to give fruit. And you plant the tree and you put dirt on it. The kid's totally engaged with you, right? Because his hands are dirty and he's enjoying that. And then you step back and you look at the tree. All of a sudden, he is completely bored by this experience. And you say, when do I get apples? Well, maybe in a couple years. I remember when I started to help my kids to invest for the first time a few years ago, I started a little investment account for each one of them. And I explained to them compounding interest and how that will accrue over the years. Um, They were very hard to get them interested in that. And when I would come to give them their allowance at the end of the week, and I said, okay, how much of this do you want to put in your compounding interest account? You can imagine how much they said they wanted to put in there. Somewhere close to zero. Because they wanted it now. They didn't want to wait for it to gain 10% over a period of a number of years. We aren't very good at waiting. But I want to answer a few questions about waiting. First of all, what are we waiting on? Why is waiting important? And what does it mean to be spiritually asleep while we're waiting? First of all, what are we waiting on? Verse 24 through 27 tells us some, Jesus told his disciples some amazing things. Uh, He says that in verse 24 and 25, he talks about some very cataclysmic events. And then in verse 26, he says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. So basically, Jesus says we're waiting on two things. We're waiting on the return of the the Savior, of the Son of Man. Son of Man is another phrase that means Savior or Jesus. We are, are the Messiah. We are waiting on the return of the Messiah in great power and glory. Now, this is very different from the way we saw him come the first time, as he came as a baby in a manger, as he came in Bethlehem. When he comes again, he's going to come in great power and glory in the heavens. The second thing we're waiting on is he's going to gather all of his people, not only from all corners of the earth, but from the heavens. And he's going to gather us together. Now, why is waiting important? Faith always involves expectant waiting. Abraham waited for the promise of a son until he was a hundred years old, and we call Abraham the father of faith. That's something we share with all of our, uh, the monotheistic religions, that Abraham is the first example of faith. He's the father of faith. And what did it require for him? Waiting. Waiting on the promises of God. The Old Testament believers waited for the arrival of the Messiah ever since Genesis chapter 3, when he was first promised. Meaning that Old Testament believers waited for 4,000 years for the Messiah to come. 
Is it a big thing that we've waited 2,000 for him to return again? Believers under the new covenant are promised that he will come back with great power and glory. And we've been waiting for 2,000 years. So what does it mean to be spiritually asleep while we wait for his coming? Well, I think it comes from two words, expectant waiting. First of all, expectant. To be spiritually asleep, Jesus says, do not sleep, do not think that he will not come back. And he gives us the illustration of this fig tree and says, pay attention to a fig tree and you see the leaf coming out and then you know the fruit is soon and that the summer and the time of harvest is on the way. So if you look at a fig tree like that, you know that there's an expectancy, especially here in a place like Michigan where the winter seems to last too long and then when you finally see the leaves coming out of the branches, you know that summer is on its way and the harvest will come with it. So to be expectant is to be awake, but to be asleep is to lose that expectancy, to lose the enthusiasm or to give up. This week as I listened to Nabil tell me about what miracle the Lord did to open his heart, I realized that in a sense I have been serving the Lord, but spiritually in a sense, asleep. That I haven't always served him with this great enthusiasm and expectancy that God is going to do some miracle, that he is going to open up hearts to his gospel. Now, I pray that way, right? And I think, and we all talk that way, but my heart doesn't always expect it. And I know that I don't because when I hear it, I'm surprised. And I'm filled again with a new sense of awakeness, that God is just like in the book of Acts is working here, not just somewhere else in some other day, but he is working now. This is the sort of expectancy that we ought always to have. And also, what does it mean to be asleep? It means to stop waiting. It means to stop waiting on his return. It means to be completely distracted with things that won't matter at all when Christ returns. It means to stop investing in his kingdom because we have our, we stopped waiting for him to return to us. So what happens in our waiting and why we don't endure as disciples sometimes is because that in those long years of waiting, we lose our expectancy and we lose the directional focus toward the skies waiting on the return of Jesus. You know, to conclude, we, we, I shared with you those two, the second and third, that during times of suffering, we tend to, um, we tend to expect, well, we tend to trust false saviors, especially during times of disappointment. But in times of suffering, we tend to forget his sovereignty or not trust his sovereignty. And then in times of waiting, we tend to fall asleep. And if I were to ask each one of you who's a follower of Jesus or a believer in Jesus uh, about this, then you would have a quick answer. Are you waiting on the return of Jesus? And you would have a quick answer, yes. Um, our Muslim friends also are waiting on the return of the Messiah to come back. But what does it mean to have this knowledge explicitly and implicitly? I was learning about this this week from a psychologist that we have these things called explicit knowledge and implicit knowledge. So explicit knowledge are the things that we would say very quickly if we were asked. 
But implicit knowledge are those things that we believe we know that we don't speak, but they're the kind of the thing that we're acting on. I'll give you an example. When my wife and I were married 20 years ago, we just celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary, um, we told each other, I love you. And if you were to ask my wife, does he love you? Does your husband love you? She would have very quickly and easily said, yes, he, he loves me. He told me he loves me, and he gave me this ring, and he's committed his life to me, and he loves me. So that's, that's what you call explicit knowledge. But the reality is, 20 years later, we didn't really understand at that time what it was to love one another. In fact, there were many times during those 20 years where I think we doubted whether the other one loved whether she, where she would doubt whether I loved her or if I doubt, and I would doubt if she loves me. Because we have this implicit knowledge that says, people will leave me. People will not love me. People will not always care about me. And I've been abandoned before, and this will happen again. So we have this sort of implicit knowledge. And then we begin to act that out. The disciples of Jesus were like this. Jesus had been spending three years with them. And here on this Tuesday, before his arrest on Thursday night and his crucifixion on Friday, he tells them three very simple things. First of all, I am your Savior. Number one, he said, I am him. Don't believe the others who say they're him. I am the Savior. The second thing he told them is, I'm, I'm Lord over this situation. You're going to face some rough situations, but I'm in charge of this, and it's going to work out for your good. And thirdly, he tells them, I'm coming back, and you'll be with me. This, you couldn't get more, you could tell small children these things, and they would understand. I, I'm here, for example, you have a small child, and you'll have to tell them, I'm here for you. You have a storm. I remember storms would come when I was a little kid in Ohio, and storms were loud and full of thunder and full of lightning and rain, and I would be afraid. And I remember going to sit with my dad during those times, and we would just watch the storm, and he would put his arm around me because I was shaking and I was afraid, and he would tell me, I'm here, I've got you, it's okay, the storm is out there, but I'm here with you, right? As little children, we tell our kids these things over and over and over until it gets deep into their implicit knowledge. So these disciples have had three years with Jesus. Right before he goes to the cross, he tells them, don't be fooled by the suffering, I'm still Lord. Don't be fooled by the lying prophets, I am the Messiah and I'm coming back. Even if you wait a long time and you go through a lot on the way, even death, I'm here for you. What happened two days later? They totally, they totally forgot all that. They totally peaced out on all that and they were gone. And they left and they were afraid. And what did he do with them? After the resurrection? So maybe you and I, maybe some of you feel like that. You're like, I'm a little worried, I won't endure. Like, I hear you. Jesus says, I'm here, I'm Lord, I, I hear that, and I'm here for you, and even in your suffering, I am Lord over these things, and it's for your good, and you're like, okay, I hear the words, but I really think I'm having a hard time, and I think I'm going to have a hard time following, and I'm going to have a hard time during the hardest times of really following. What did he do after the resurrection? He gathered his disciples again to him, and he asked Peter, do you love me? Yes. Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes. You know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Three times for the three times that he denied him. So, what does that mean for you and me? That 
God is leading you through disappointment, suffering, and waiting to teach you. He will carry you through it, and he will come back for you. So even in your failure to endure, even in your failure to trust him, his resurrection power for those who have believed on him is still there, and you can trust him. So we can say, I'll have a few, th- a few ways we can respond to this. First of all, if you've never believed on Jesus as your personal Savior, today you can do that. You could claim Jesus as Lord now if you never have. So if you say, I like Jesus, I've heard about Jesus, I'm, in, I, I'm thinking about it, today you can say, Lord, I want you today to save me. I'm not strong enough, but I'm going to trust that you are. I want to invite you, if that's you, to pray to receive Christ, to speak to him and say, Lord Jesus, save me. A simple prayer like that is enough. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to confess out loud. You could say, Lord, I know you are sovereign in my suffering. And we're going to pray in a second, and I want to lead, lead you to say that out loud. It's a, if you're a follower of Jesus, say, Lord, I know you are sovereign, even in my suffering. And second, Lord, I know you are coming back for me. Even so come, Lord Jesus. So you can confess. Confess Jesus. And thirdly, take your eyes off of yourself and on your power. I think in sermons like this or in passages like this that, incur- that, it, that implore us to endure, we get very self-reflective and we think about all the times we've failed or we think about our weakness and our inability to continue to the end, especially in very difficult situations. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 gives us the direction that we should go to take our eyes off of ourselves and put it on the Savior who endured. Hebrews 12, 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If you're weak like me today, and you wonder if you can endure in the race, I want to invite you to take your eyes off of yourself and your weakness and put it on our Savior who endured the cross for you and me. And he endured death, and he rose again, and today he is waiting to return to us. So I want to say a prayer with you, and I want to invite you to close your eyes with me and and bow your heads. And I want you to, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you want to, I want you to repeat after me these two phrases and say them out loud to the Lord. Lord, I know you are sovereign in my suffering. Would you say that with me? Lord, I know you are sovereign in my suffering. Second thing is to say with with me is, Lord, I know you are coming back for me. Even so come. If you're a follower and believer in Jesus, would you say that with me? Lord, I know you are coming back for me, even so come. Father, we thank you that before the cross, you gave us these words of encouragement 
And I pray, Father, that you would help us to endure because you endured the cross and rose again. Your goodness has been with us and you have upheld us in our weakness up until today. And we are waiting for your return. And we say together, even so come, Lord Jesus.